Hello, literacy leaders and champions. Welcome to Literacy Talks. We are so excited to welcome you to this podcast series from Reading Horizons, dedicated to exploring the ideas, trends, insights, and practical issues that will help us all improve our professional practice in teaching reading. Our series host is Stacy Hurst, professor at Southern Utah University and chief academic officer at Reading Horizons, where reading momentum begins. Joining Stacy are Donnell Pons, a recognized expert in literacy and special education, and Lindsay Kemeny, a Utah-based elementary classroom teacher. Today's topic, a movement building momentum. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Literacy Talks. I'm Stacy Hurst, and I'm here with Donnell Pons and Lindsay Kemeny, where we talk a lot about literacy. So we're happy to have you along for the conversation. So our topic today is specific to the science of reading, but how we can contribute to the movement and moving it forward and supporting all of the people involved. And lately, we've had a lot of focus on that. The three of us participated on Saturday in a broadcast that was talking about the science of reading as a movement and specifically how we can help encourage and promote good practices based on the science of reading. So I thought today we would just talk about ways to think of how we can support those people that we work with and our own learning to help promote these things. As we know, there are a lot of people who are still tied to old practices that um, those of us who were taught in college and we just hung on to them for a long time. So change is hard sometimes. And I feel like it does take a village, (laughs) so to speak. So I thought I would start by asking the question. I mean, obviously we come to teaching from different perspectives and backgrounds. Um, Lindsay, you're a classroom teacher. You were trained in balanced literacy practices and you implemented them. I will admit in my classroom, I fully embraced them. Um, And then Donnell, you came to the science of reading in large part because of your own children. So I think I'd like to start by asking the question, what are some of the supports or resources that you would have preferred in your journey to this place, especially as you were just starting to learn? So if you wouldn't mind just reminding us what drew your attention to what we are now referring to as the science of reading and what do you wish had been in place for you at that time to help guide you on that path? Donnell, do you want to go first? You bet, Stacey. I I would love to because you're right. My journey was a little bit different. My first career was as a reporter for the local newspaper, and I was a writer and reporter. And then I married someone that I had no idea had dyslexia. And I was introduced to dyslexia by just hearing him read. (laughs) He didn't even know he had dyslexia. It was not a great introduction for either of us. And then it was, so what is this? And, And why is someone so bright, clearly so bright? struggling with reading. And how does that happen? It hadn't been part of my story, my narrative. And people close around me, I hadn't realized until later had struggled. So that was interesting too, that opened my eyes to struggles that were happening even in my own house that I wasn't aware of. So that was the way that I came to it. It's not a great introduction. I love today 
There's so much information. That's so fantastic that you don't have to blindly stumble along until you can find, you know, this great book in the library and start to do your own research. Rather, we have a, a whole host of information. Now it might be information overload. What's the best thing and sifting through. But I remember specifically, I was standing on the steps outside of the school building and, and I was waiting for one of my first two children. And my son was that duck to water reader. Uh, had taken to it just like I had as a young person. So I didn't really think much about how did I come to reading. And a woman leaned over next to me, a neighbor. She was a speech language pathologist. And she said, so what do you think? Whole language or phonics? And I didn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue what she was even talking about. Didn't mean anything to me. Didn't have a clue. Later, that would become my entire life. So I think what's interesting about this whole discussion about the science of reading, I think perhaps for some of us, the science of reading we come to it because we have to. It's our oasis in the desert. There is no other place to go. We are we are thirsty and there is no water to drink. Those are us who have people who are struggling in our lives who have never been able to read well, right? It's so that's desperation. That, that's yeah. Desperation. You are coming to the science of reading. And then there's a, a group of other individuals who, for them, and I used to be part of that group. They don't know how they came to reading, but it just worked out great and they love to read. And so coming to the science of reading, I can see how that might be a different journey. And maybe it isn't the same lingering and hunger that someone has who has people who are struggling. And Stacey, I even mentioned earlier today, when you are able to provide the pieces that the research, that large body we're talking about, remember, it's not a conference or anything like that. This is a body of research we're talking about. When you have those practices in your teaching, individuals who have struggled for a very long time finally conquer those mountains. And they always turn to you and say something similar, like, it's like you can see inside my brain and you know what I need. You're never going to hear that any other way. The other one is, I never thought I'd be able to read. I've done, you've done amazing things. This is so good for me. You hear things like that. That's the difference, right? So you're saying that at your particular juncture, you wish you had more information available to you right at that time. I had to do a lot of sleuthing and I'm also acknowledging that not everybody will have the same hunger for it. It depends on your background, right? And so our journeys will look different and that's okay. Because I, I think we're kind of expecting everybody to want the same things or maybe look the same way perhaps. And maybe that's where some of the disagreement might come. Some of us might take a while to get there. We're gonna, different things will motivate us. It might take different experiences. And some of us are going to run towards it because we need it so much, right? So the journeys are going to look different too. I think that is really fair to call out because on the other end of that spectrum, perhaps we have teachers who are very happy with the way they've been teaching reading and been getting a lot of support, a lot of results. And most of their students may be learning to read with whatever they're doing. And they're being told that they now need to have this training or implement new practices that are aligned. And so they're not coming from it from a point of desperation, but more uh, mandate. So I think that's important to acknowledge because the how we support those people depends wholly on where they're coming from. That's a really good thing to point out. I also love your story because as with any movement, there are a lot of different stakeholders. Everybody as a society should be invested in this issue, my opinion. But we have parents that we cannot leave out of the equation. We have administrators, we have teachers, we have the children themselves. We should never lose sight of that. And the, the students. So there are a lot of people that we could consider in these scenarios. Okay, so Lindsay, 
tell us about where you started with all this and what you wish had been in place. Two things going on. Um, One, it was my first year teaching kindergarten. So I started, I'm teaching them the alphabet and then I'm bringing them back to my table and I have these predictable texts to give them. And I find myself having to say things like, look at the first letter. Can you figure out the word? Look at the picture. Does it give you a clue? Which are all things I used in second grade. I was heavily trained in those strategies with balanced literacy. I never saw a problem with them until I was teaching kindergarten. And I realized, wait, I want these guys to practice their sound symbol correspondences. I want them, you know, to apply what I'm teaching them. And now I'm having them move their eyes off the word and and guessing, you know, and, you know, I had taught when I taught second grade way back, um, you know, I taught games like guess the covered word, you know, and I thought nothing of it. I feel like I was brainwashed. So, um, (laughs) um, and then at the same year is when my son was diagnosed with dyslexia and similar to Donnell, that's really what made me dive deep into, okay, what is going on? How can I get him to learn how to read? That brought me to the wealth of information that we now call the science of reading. I didn't necessarily call it that then. Um, So it was like Donnell was saying, this was a necessity and this is the only way he was going to learn how to read. And what I wish I had back then, well, well, first of all, I wish I hadn't been taught faulty theories of reading in the first place. Like yeah. I was really mad. I, not only was I not given tools to, to teach my you know struggling readers, but I was taught the wrong way to teach reading really. And I know that's hard to hear for people. And they say, no, there's not a wrong way. I think there is uh, because those three cueing strategies are just developing these bad habits in these students. And it it might look like those kids are reading. And really in kindergarten, it does. It's a lot easier to have them memorize the pattern in the text and just read those predictable texts. That's so much easier to listen to too, as a teacher, because you're like, yes, they're getting it, but they're not. A couple years down the road, they're just, oh, they're going to fail. And so it's longer to hear them sounding out a decodable book. It's, you know, it's hard. It's a struggle, but that's what the brain needs to do. That's what needs to happen for them to learn how to read. So sorry, I'm getting a little passionate about it, but yeah, you're just asking like what I wish. I just, I wish I had known those things from the start because I could have helped more students. Yeah, I, all of that is really resonating with me. And I think I've been in in this for long enough now that I've worked through a lot of the emotions I've had related to, I wish I'd known it sooner. Those of you who know my story, you know that I actually did look to research early on in my career. So I count that as a great blessing that I really relied heavily on the National Reading Panel Report, which was published the year before I started teaching. And so there are a lot of things that I had access to but I am still trying to remember how I even learned about that National Reading Panel report because I can still ask people what those five components are and they can't answer. So when, Donnell, you were talking about information to be available and you mentioned now there's too much information, <laughs> where do you think we should point people to start? You know, <laughs> the thing about it is, as Lindsay mentioned before, as a kindergarten teacher, it's easier. Certain things are just easier. It's just easier to listen to kids do. And the thing about it is, as a lot of this information isn't easily or readily accessible, it you're going to have to do some work, right, to unpack a lot of it. It doesn't. There's some spoon feeding of some things. You can read some articles, which are great. We've talked about Emily Hanford's articles on literacy. I think those are fantastic places to start. But eventually, if you are a practitioner 
you're going to have to get into the nitty gritty. You're going to have to get into the research and the study and understand so you can understand not only why you're doing what you're doing in your classroom, but how to do what you're doing in your classroom. And oftentimes I see a disconnect between that. You can attend a great conference or a great training, but then you could return to the classroom and it's now, now how, how do I do that? What, what does this look like in my classroom? And so it sounds like, oh, great. We'll just mention a couple of books. We'll be off on our way. If it were that easy, we'd all have done it by now. And there wouldn't be such resistance to doing it because there's a fair amount of resistance because let's face it, it's not easy to do. But there are some seminal pieces of work. I think for, for me, a game changer was when I purchased David Kilpatrick's book, equipped for our essentials of assessing, preventing, and overcoming reading difficulties. That was a game changer book. It was 2015. You know, I've, I've been seeing a lot of pieces here and there and pulling things together, but really that book, he brought it all into one place. He laid it out very well. You could follow it. He was thinking about educators. One of the first uh, conferences that he did after the book was in Utah here. We invited him and he came and he was so gracious. And in a conversation, a sidebar conversation we were able to have, I was telling him how how useful I thought the book was. I had it all dog-eared and everything. You could see I was using it. He said, oh, I'm so glad to see that because that's what I wanted to see. It's for educators. That really was his audience. Um, So that for me is a seminal piece of work. It still is. I think it is a great piece of work. And then, of course, Dr. Louisa Motes. We're we're seeing letters training, marching across the country. We're having letters trainings in most states. Oftentimes, it's mandated. A lot of them are naming it right inside of pieces of legislation. And that's excellent science of reading-based instruction about why we do the things that we do in reading. It covers a lot of the areas. But again, there's the training that gives you that background, but then that might not necessarily translate to what a teacher does in the classroom come Monday. And I think, too, those of us who are involved with teachers, we are teachers, how we support our colleagues in that mission is important. I was in school today. My students are working with kindergarten students. There are four classrooms of kindergartners. And I saw some really amazing things in one classroom. Students who were doing the thing. They were reading. They were spelling. They were focusing on the sounds. They were making those phoneme, grapheme connections. Same school, down the hall, not so much. So I know um, that there can be tension among coworkers when it comes to that. But I can also tell you the results that that teacher that I witnessed, the phoneme graphing mapping (laughs) happening, her results are speaking for themselves. And I think that's going to be key too. Colleagues helping and supporting colleagues. That's how we'll work together to ensure all students can read proficiently by the end of third grade. To stay up to date on the latest insights and tips from the Literacy Talks podcast team, sign up today for our newsletter by visiting readinghorizons.com slash literacy talks. Lindsay, you're currently in a school setting Mm -hmm. and you are in contact with educators across the country daily. What do you do to support them? Yeah, it's, you know, I think it's easier to be supportive online than it is face-to-face. Face-to-face is a little bit trickier um, when, you know, oh, it's, it's hard to know how to answer that question, but part of change is being really vulnerable. So online is a little bit easier because a lot of times the people that are coming to me are already kind of ready for it. And um, 
a teacher that might be just right down the hall might not understand why she or he needs to change. And so you can't really force that on people. They've got to kind of see it, you know? And I try to kind of like what you're saying, I mostly try to lead by example, like look at my scores, look how my students are doing. I love when teachers come and ask me questions because I love to help them that way. But um, I have a hard time, like I don't want to be pushy and get in people's faces about it, you know? So it's just a fine line, but it's really great now because originally when I first came to this knowledge, this knowledge base of reading, I felt like an island. I felt like I was all alone and it was really great reaching out nationally because then I kind of found my people. But now it's so exciting because our district and our school are all doing letters training and we were getting together last year and meeting every week and talking about the things we were learning. And it was so exciting for me to have these conversations with the people in my building. I loved it. So it's good. Change is coming, but it's hard and you don't want to step on toes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But then the parent side of me wants to step on toes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? I, I don't sure. want other kids. I don't want other kids to go through what my child went through. Yeah. And, and yeah. luckily, I'm not in a heavy ba- balanced literacy district, although it's it's kind of like the most popular way. So when people go to get things from teachers, pay teachers, or you know, whatever, there's balanced literacy practices. My yeah. old district, heavily, heavily trained. I don't think I could go back and teach in that district. I'd have such a hard time. Yeah. Interestingly, I think I've evolved. I was in the position of being a literacy coach and a reading specialist in a school. And I do remember recognizing early that a big role was to help disseminate the research. Those research studies are not written for your average first grade classroom teacher. (laughs) You have to know how to read research and you have to dedicate the time to getting meaning out of those studies. And not many know, teachers have yeah. the time. Yeah. <laughs> no. And I remember as a teacher, and I think I've shared this with you guys before, I did read the first grade studies before I started teaching first grade because the title made it so obvious that I needed to read that. But that was over the summer before I started teaching. And it took some time. It took some investment. But I do remember as a teacher, I loved doing the thing. I do love translating that research into practice. That was something that I was curious about and passionate about. And I followed that passion. But I also remember at the same time, you know, getting ready to do my reading groups or whatever, and having this pull of like, oh, I wish I had more time to study. I wish I had more time to dive into these things. And so I feel like anything we can do to help our coworkers (laughs) um, have that more available to them or anybody that we're interfacing with about this and I love that Donnell used to readily recommend a certain book, you know, that it's at the tip of your tongue and your fingertips. This is a good place to go first. I think that's really helpful. I was, the, it was hard. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Lindsay. Well, no, I was Lindsay, just going to say, I think the most important thing like a teacher can do and like, we need to encourage other teachers just to learn. You've got to build mm-hmm. your knowledge, especially right now where we have so many misconceptions about what the science of reading is, especially as more and more people hear about it. I, I hear things or they're relating certain practices to the science of reading that aren't necessarily, you know, aligned with that. And so it's concerning to me. We wanted to get the word out there so much. And now I'm like, ah, I want to protect the term science of reading because now anybody slaps it on their product. Um, anyone's using it. So it's just, it's just on us to build our knowledge base on this and on the research, scientifically based research on reading so that we can ascertain if something is aligned or not. Is this a good practice or not? And we just, you know, got to raise our level 
collect- I love that. And anytime there's a new initiative or a new focus, I see this in teachers and I probably did this myself. This is what I'm used to doing. I'm going to keep doing it. I love it. It's my pet thing. And so I will make it fit into whatever they're telling me I need to do next, right? So I did have a lot of teachers early on that would say, I do teach phonics. Of course we teach phonics. We teach spelling, you know, but then you're saying, are you teaching it systematically? Are you teaching explicitly? Where's your sequence? And then there wasn't one. (laughs) And so just um, being aware, I think is really helpful. I feel like um, I'm getting to the point in my career. It's interesting because I have read Louisa Motes and others research on teacher knowledge I replicated that study for my master's thesis, and I know the research, one of the things I remember being shocked about, now I'm not, is that professors didn't score any better than the in-service and pre-service teachers taking the same survey about the constructs of the English language that we need to know to teach reading. That surprised me at the time. But then I thought back to my own education. And now I'm at a point, I understand I am at a great university that I have a lot of support. My coworkers, whether they teach reading classes or not, are taking letters. They're learning. They're coming to me with questions. And so I'm grateful to be there to help them as we learn together. I love that you pointed that out, Lindsay, because as teachers, we somehow have lost the part of that definition that we're learners first, (laughs) we're all learners first and always, right? Because we want to model learning for our students. But I also get equally frustrated. Now I'm taking it personally when I hear people say, well, I feel like the blame has shifted from teachers in the classroom to professors. And I, I don't think blame, I don't know how productive it is. Identifying sources of the problem, yes, but blame, not so much. But I am taking it personally now. I already know I'm in the minority of university professors teaching reading, um, lying to the science of reading. But I get really mad when I hear people say, well, they're not teaching it to our pre-service teachers. So I feel like there's a way that we can help support what's happening in universities. And that is upstream, but it's not currently something we focused on. What do you guys think that you would like to see teachers no, out of the gate. What would you like to see in our universities change? Yeah, so yeah, Stacy, we've, we've been having this conversation. It's really relevant because right now a lot of legislative sessions are occurring across the country. So this is a key time to be pushing legislation and you're going to hear all kinds of things. There are some pushback against this legislation and I've been on both sides of this. I've been all around it because I came into this obviously as a mother of students who struggle realizing that what was occurring was not sufficient, not just for my students, but others could benefit as well. And then diving into it from the advocacy end, the grassroots advocacy end. So I joined Decoding Dyslexia right off. And then immediately you're put to work. You end up at the Capitol. You're doing a lot of this. You're on the inside now looking in as to how do we make these decisions? How do we really change things inside of a large system that looks like it's unchangeable? And then working at the Board of Education, also showing up there, going to meetings, being vocal, trying to be supportive as well. How can we make change? How do we help all of these students? So there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes and a lot of levels of advocacy. There isn't just one. It's going to take a lot. So when you see key pieces of legislation, they typically have a lot of levels to them. That's when you know that some homework has been done because this is more than just one. Yes, we need our schools of education 
to be teaching the science of reading. Now, what does that look like? Is it a letters training that we now allow professors to be able to do those letters training so that we can have more people benefiting from that? We ought to be looking at that. So if we're going to have letters training across the country and everybody's going to be utilizing it, then it ought to be more versatile so that we can have it used in more situations and in more ways. I'm all for that too. We ought to look at it. So this is going to take a lot of us being willing to be open to doing things a little bit differently and working together because there are schools of education. There are teachers that are already in our schools that are receiving training and they're getting that lovely letters training. Could it look the same perhaps for those entering? We're also going to need our administrators who are over particularly elementary schools to be trained so that they have a background because a lot of them are choosing the curriculum that will go with this training. So as we're talking, it's like, what would you like to see? There's a lot of layers that we'd like to see. And eventually, when you do make change, you've got to have all those layers. We're seeing states like Mississippi, Connecticut, those that are seeing great change, those that have had good reading scores, and people are now starting to take a page from the playbook and implement it in other parts of the country. But that's kind of the long answer to the big question. Yeah, I, well, I just get really frustrated when I hear of these people that are pushing back because I'm like, wait, right. we're just saying our instructions should be aligned with high quality research. You know? <laughs> I mean, like, how can you push back against that? Um, and I love what uh, Dr. Tracy Whedon said last week at that event that we watched from the Reading League where she said, adult egos are our biggest barrier. And sometimes I find that the people that are pushing back really have some skin in the game somehow. Yeah. They've in invested money. They have, they've created products, you know, not all the time. Go ahead, Donnelly. You're going to say Lindsay, something. I love what you're saying. And you just made me want to say that you're right. Skin in the game. There's some reason why we're getting this resistance because otherwise I'm carrying people's hearts and souls and dreams and wishes. That's what I'm carrying are the yeah. people who have struggled their entire lives to learn to read. And so when I face opposition, I just feel stronger because I feel like I'm carrying all of those stories of individuals that I've had to tutor over the years and all that they have lost, all that they wish they could have had. And you just can't quit. You just keep going. We need to fight for them and they can't fight yeah. for themselves a lot of times. And I know it's hard as a teacher. I felt so much teacher guilt. And I think you got to move past that too, because it's like the steps of the grieving process, you know, <laughs> where you're like, you know, you're in denial yeah. and you're like, I don't know. My kids are doing great. And you've got to take a deeper look. And could they be doing greater? And could all of them be reading? And how are they doing two years down the road? And try to have grace with yourself and with others. You've got to push past that and say, okay, I can do better. I know better. I do better. And try not to fight it and get defensive. It was really timely for me to hear um, Tracy Whedon say that too. I had just invited my students to read Emily Hanford's article. And for some reason, this particular class got super fixated on Ken Goodman. I didn't point it out. <laughs> Sometimes I call it out. Sometimes I do say. But they were like, why? Why did he insist? On his deathbed, basically, he said, well, not my science. They were the ones that noticed that. And so when I heard Tracy Whedon say that, he immediately came to my mind. I hope he is resting in peace. Don't get me wrong. I respect his passion. However, um, yeah, I think in that case and many others, it is ego. It is, this is the way I've always done it. And maybe, maybe just the reason I get so frustrated and take really personally when people call out universities and colleges of education is because some of that pushback or maybe even a lot of it starts there. Mm -hmm. And that's upstream. That's where I, in my opinion, that's where I think we could make the biggest impact the fastest 
is if we could get that change in our colleges of education. That's probably just from my perspective right now. I'm going to ask you the same question in conclusion, so be thinking about it. But I also, I don't want to reduce the problem to an oversimplified solution, but some of this is culture specific too. So it's systemic, but we need to change the way. So blame, probably not going to get us very far, right? And shame, blame and shame, nothing ever gets resolved that way. But I think if we keep our sights on the heart and soul of it, like you were just talking about, Donnell, the stories and yeah, the teacher guilt that we have, I see faces that I could have done better by and they're kids to me. They're in their twenties and maybe even thirties. They're still six years old in my mind. But I also think if we could just change our culture as teachers to that learner perspective, staying curious following our curiosity, leaning into it and modeling. Yeah, being a learner is vulnerable. You are admitting that there's something you don't know, which I am painfully aware of daily in my life, but then leaning into that and learning from it and moving on. So anyway, in conclusion, last question then, what do you think we could do that you feel like would make the biggest difference? And there's obviously no right or wrong answer, but from your perspective, Whereas one place we could focus, I've already stated, I think mine is in the colleges of education. And I do think we're legislating that teachers pass the foundations of reading tests and pre-service teachers before they get their license. Our college professors need to be taking that test and passing it. And I don't know. I know many that could, many that I look up to and revere, and I know they, they probably wrote the test. I feel like that would be a good place to start in our colleges of education and not in the blaming way, but providing support so that we can prepare our teachers the best way that we can. Okay. Okay, I am seeing your faces on the screen and you're you're all deep in thought. So don't know. I'm going to give you my diplomatic answer and then my not so diplomatic answer. That's great. (laughs) So the diplomatic answer, I'm going to side with you too. Having been on all levels of this thing, I think our schools of education, if we could get those on board, that would be like turning the Titanic. That would be the way of turning that Titanic uh, more quickly. I'm with you there. Okay, my less diplomatic answer to that question, and I, I have dreams of this sometimes, you know, midnight, if I'm not able to sleep and I'm thinking about literacy, this is one of those dreams I have, that if we had every student who was underserved and did not learn to read properly and had challenges that were never acknowledged, recognized, and they didn't receive support, if they all joined together and we all filed a class action lawsuit in one day, Can you imagine? Because that would really tell the story. Because for too long, they've suffered in silence. It's the loudest silence I've ever heard. And, you know, I think those of us who are teaching and who are proficient readers, we don't see it sometimes. That's why I love that we have people like both of you who have really personal experience with this, with your own children. And that is what we need to bring to light. There are more people than we know. The loudest silence. I call it the loudest silence. silence. I was going to repeat that, Donnell. I think we could end right there. The loudest silence. That is powerful. Um, It's like my son. I'm I'm going to fight for him every step of the way. I am there for him. But what about the kids that don't have someone there for them? Who fights for them? I want to fight for them too. You know, I visited another classroom with this little third grader that would keep his head down on his desk the entire day and refuse to do anything. And if you went over and talked to him, he put up his head and he'd say, I'm illiterate. I'm illiterate. And then he'd put his head back down and he had just completely shut down. And 
that is what's happening to these kids. And we need to keep them in the forefront of our minds while we're thinking about all the science of reading and, and how to best help our kids. You know, it's about everyone, not just about teaching reading to the ones where they're going to learn to read no matter what. And it doesn't matter which way, you know, there's more, there's more students to consider. So it's hard, Stacey, to answer the question because I agree with you and the teacher prep programs need to change. But then I don't want to just say that because we have so many teachers out in the field right now that could use this knowledge right now. And I just want to say to all the teachers that are listening out there and really anyone in this journey, baby steps. Take baby steps. It can be overwhelming. You guys have been studying this for years. I've been studying this stuff for four years and I make little changes every day, every year. There's new things I'm implementing and be open. You have to be vulnerable. Every time I go into like a workshop or a training and I'm like, oh, I think I know this. I always learn something new. And that's the thing with the science of reading. I love that we can have these healthy debates. We can refine our practices it's not all settled. We have to keep an open mind all the time. Love that. So yeah, I think we can reduce it to having a learner mindset and helping, I guess, modeling that I need to do better, but modeling it and helping others to adopt that too, and not to blame and shame. And to your point, Donnell, I call it my filter, (laughs) but there are sometimes the things that come out of my mouth. You and I both did an Ed Week webinar today And we were talking about this very thing, systemic change and the need for that. And I literally, the phrase that kept coming to my mind that we could not say would be, you can't half ace this. I said, ace, change the vowel sound and you'll know what the actual saying is. But this is not just on a teacher. This is not just on a professor. This is not just on a single principal or a literacy coach. This is on all of us because it will benefit everybody. It will help us to all become the people we have the potential to be better than we even are now. And so it's in everyone's best interest to stay engaged with this movement and help to move it along. Thank you for your perspective today. And to end it, just to say that we just need to work together. Let's change the culture, the way that we look at teaching and maybe focus more on learning for us as well and applying what we're learning and extending grace and trying to remember what it's like to be in those people's shoes, whatever ground your feet are touching. So thank you to all the teachers, all the principals, all the parents, all the stakeholders who probably if you're listening to this podcast episode, you're already invested. Just keep on keeping on, I guess. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us today for Literacy Talks, the podcast series for literacy leaders and champions everywhere. Literacy Talks comes to you from Reading Horizons, where reading momentum begins. Join us next time.